The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Welcome back. Isaiah chapter 11 is where we're heading, but I want to begin by answering a question that was raised to me. The question is, and if I get it wrong, Brother Rick, who asked it, can re-ask it. The question is, one, why is Isaiah, this book, in our Bible? Why did the Jews at some point actually say, yes, Isaiah was a prophet of the Lord, when the world at that time was filled with false prophets, most of whom were being listened to more than Isaiah. And then the second question is, why do Jews take Isaiah seriously today? So to answer this, I want to go to two different texts and see if they can help us. The first text is Deuteronomy 18, 19, and 20. Actually, 21 and 22. There we go. Here's what we read. Uh, if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken in the context of prophets? Well, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So this is Moses anticipating a line of prophets that would culminate in the ultimate prophet, Jesus. And the people are going to want to discern which ones do we listen to and which ones don't we listen to. And everything hinges on Yahweh's ability to foretell the future in a way that no other prophet can. Now, in the book of Isaiah, this becomes massively significant. Because Isaiah is filled with foretelling of specific future events. Isaiah 46, for example, remember this and stand firm, recall it to mind, you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other, I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. God enters in through prophets like Isaiah and begins to foreshadow coming events. Isaiah is going to do something radical. He's ministering between 740 and 700 B.C. And Isaiah is going to talk about 
not simply Assyria's destruction of Samaria. Isaiah is going to look ahead and talk about a people that in Isaiah's day were not even that influential yet. Babylon. And that this country Babylon would actually come and destroy in 586 all of Jerusalem. Isaiah's looking ahead. 150 years and pinpointing it. Not only that, he's going to talk about someone else. He's going to call him a shepherd. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord. I'm in Isaiah 44, end of the chapter. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars, who makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills his counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry. I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purposes. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundations shall be laid. Now Cyrus is the king of Persia. Persia's barely even on the map at this time in history. And yet, looking ahead, 720, all the way up to 538, 180 years, he names an individual who will lead Israel out of exile after Babylon and lead them back to Jerusalem, giving them freedom to return, and saying, go ahead, build up the city. Reestablish the foundations of your temple. And Isaiah names him by name. Now there's many liberal scholars, and many who are even today claiming to be evangelical scholars, who, maybe some of you have heard of this, talk about multiple Isaiahs. When they're talking about the authorship of this book, they talk about Deutero-Isaiah and Trito-Isaiah. There's the original Isaiah of Jerusalem. They'll affirm he, he wrote some of the stuff. His name is in the first verse. And then he shows up in a number of other verses. But there's so many things in this book that foreshadow events that no human could have ever known about. What we have here is prophecy after the fact. That's how it always worked among the prophets of the Old Outside the Bible, we, we hear about prophets all throughout the ancient world. And most of them were yes-men to the king. And they used propaganda often. We, we have books and books and books of collections of these ancient prophecies from around the biblical world in the days of Isaiah Many Assyrian prophecies. And they look a lot like Isaiah's words. They're doing very similar things. But we have no evidence that any of them actually 
were able to foresee what was coming. These are after-the-fact prophecies where after a major event happens, like a king rises to power, then a prophecy is created from a hundred years before, but we have no evidence of it back there. It's only written at the time of the king. But it's pulled out as if, look it, a prophet from long ago proclaimed this to be true. Now, if Isaiah's book was not written by Isaiah, but one of his disciples, years and years after, after Babylon has risen to power, after Cyrus is already on the scene, then all of a sudden the very essence of the second half of Isaiah means nothing. Because all of it hinges on a God who declares, I declare the end from the beginning. And no one else can do it. I alone am He. His sermon hinges on the fact that Yahweh is different from any other God of the ancient world. And all of it hinges on whether or not when he declares something will happen, it happens. Jason, were the prophets of that time who may have backdated their prophecies or whatever, were they also Jewish or were they of some other persuasion? If, if you go to a book like 2 Kings, you'll find out that there were, or, or 1 Kings, um, there were many, many prophets who had Israelite blood who were prophets of other gods. Think about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. 450 of them on Mount Carmel going head-to-head with Elijah. And they're Israelite prophets. Not to Yahweh. Correct. Now, there were, there were, uh, there were, there were prophets who would declare to be Yahweh prophets who were pro-king prophets. But then the true Yahweh prophet would show up and he would say um, something against the king, like Jeremiah. The, in 1 Kings chapter 18, no, uh, 1, Kings, 1 Kings 20, it's a humorous story of Ahab and Jehoshaphat. Ahab's the king in Israel, Jehoshaphat's the king in Judah, and the peoples on the east side of the Jordan are rising. And so Ahaz come, Ahab comes down and says, Jehoshaphat, come with us and let's go into battle. Jehoshaphat says, have you talked to God about this? And Ahab comes in and says, oh yes, I have many, many prophets who have affirmed it. And Jehoshaphat says, well, is there any prophet of Yahweh among these? And Ahab says, well, there's one, his name's Micaiah, and always he prophesies against me. So at the same time, we get this shot into the heavenlies, much like in the first chapter of, the, of Job. And we see God up in his heavenly council, and he declares, who will put a spirit of deception into the mouths of the prophets of Ahab. And one voice rises and is sent down to put a spirit of of lying into the mouth of the prophets. Now, Micaiah shows up and Jehoshaphat says, okay, should we go to battle? And Micaiah says, oh yes, go ahead, go fight. And Ahab, Ahab says, 
you're doing it again. You're, you're just jacking with me, right? This is all, this is all ridiculous. And Micaiah says, yes, know this, you will go into battle and you will die on this very day. Now Ahab says, get out, kicks out the prophet. For whatever reason, Jehoshaphat decides, okay, I'll still go with you. And um, Ahab, though, has something in his mind that says, Micaiah is, maybe he's right. And so Ahab dressed up like a civilian, or just a regular military guy, and Jehoshaphat's the only one who looks like the king. And Jehoshaphat's out on his chariot, and all the enemies come in, drawn toward the king, and when they see, oh, this is just Jehoshaphat, they turn away. And they're looking for Ahab. And it says, by chance, that's what the text says, by chance, a lone arrow flew from one of the bows and struck Ahab and killed him. Well, he got hit, he started bleeding, they pulled him off, and he died later that day. These were Israelite prophets. They had, they had Abrahamic blood in them, but they were non-true Yahweh prophets. So, so the point of this is that, why Isaiah? Why Isaiah, we get a hint of that when we go to Ezekiel 33.30. Behold, Ezekiel. So here's a prophet, Ezekiel. He's ministering after 586. Actually, sorry. He gets taken in 597. 597. Ezekiel, he was only a priest serving alongside Jeremiah. Jeremiah was older. Ezekiel was a young priest in Jerusalem, not a prophet yet. 597, he gets hiked off to Babylon. Around 593, he gets called to be a prophet. And he begins to preach. For 40 years, he preaches. And in the entire book of Ezekiel, 48 chapters, we see no hint at all that anyone, anyone ever listened to him. But this is what we read so, Ezekiel, more than any other prophet in the Old Testament, dramatizes his sermons. He was an entertainer. At least that's what the people thought of him. Here's what the text says. And behold, you are to them like one who sings heartfelt love songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. But what has Ezekiel been declaring? Ezekiel's been declaring Jerusalem's going to fall. 586 is going to come. And God says, when this comes, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. So the question on the table is, why Isaiah? How in a sea of prophets, when people didn't want to listen to people like Isaiah, how does this book get raised up and recognized not determined to be, but recognized as Bible. And I think it has to do with these three major dates. So follow-up then, so then 
I assume that we're to suppose that sometime after 538, after these things had happened, someone among Jewish authority said, this writing is on the level with the other writings that we regard to be the Word of God. Um, and do all of, do all of the, the prophets, the major and minor prophets, do they come in after 538? I mean, trying to get to it's the, it's, the, uh, it's the mystery of this prophecy coming in at this period of time prior to the arrival of Christ. Did all of it come in after 538? And like, what were the circumstances, to the best, as best you know, what were the circumstances that caused the people who were jealous of the Word of God to add all of this in, in a, in a window of history? Um, let me see if I can find something in a book here easily. Doesn't look too easy. Okay, there it is. Um, so, just cataloging our prophets in their time frame. The chronology of the Old Testament prophets doesn't align with their order in our Bibles, which suggests that theology over history was at stake when they were shaping where the prophets went. So, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. Right there, three different periods of prophetic activity, 8th to early 7th century, late 7th to early 6th, late 6th to 5th century. So we've got Jonah, Amos, Hosea, our prophets to the northern kingdom, Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, prophets to the southern kingdom, all prior to 723. I think that after 723 came, all of those minority voices in the culture were raised up to the point of recognition these were the canonical voices. We may not have wanted to listen to them, but they alone foretold this immediate event. And as the immediate event came about, they also foretold further, longer-term events, like the rise of the Messiah and the growth of the church. And the immediate fulfillments gave substantiation to trusting the longer-term declarations. Far before 538, already in 723, the Old Testament prophetic canon, this group of texts that were understood to be authoritative, were already being shaped. Yeah, it, must have, it, it must have been such astonishing those prophecies must have been so astonishing in their accuracy that these guardians of the Word had to have said, we haven't seen anything like this before. I think you're absolutely right. We have not seen anything like this since Moses. And, or, or I mean, there, there were others, but what's at stake? Think about Elijah and Elisha. They didn't write. They were not writing prophets. Samuel was not a writing prophet. And... Now we get these guys, and I think what's happened is that the level of rebellion and the prolongedness of, the, of Israel's rebellion as a covenant people grew, escalated to a point where the prophets needed to um, move from just addressing kings, for example, to addressing the populace, 
and confronting the whole populace of their covenant rebellion. So this second group, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Joel, Obadiah, Ezekiel, 586 comes, and all of a sudden, the, the group of prophets is expanded. They, they recognize God continues to talk all the way down to Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and um, I think it's in 4th Maccabees, could be in 2nd Maccabees. It's, a, it's one of the Jewish books that comes out between uh, the Old and the New Testament in that 400-year gap that declares, since Malachi, we have had no prophet that that was just understood, that, that there was a, a closing of the Old Testament word. And I think there's good, there's a good, um, good argument that Malachi as the final, the, 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 late, the last of the prophets, was indeed the one who put together the section of the Jewish Bible called the Prophets let alone the minor prophets, and grouped all 12 into a single book, like Stephen calls them in Acts chapter 7. He calls them the book of the prophets. And they're called the book of the 12, usually in Jewish circles. And so there's Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. That's not chronological. That's biggest book to the smallest book. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and then the 12. And they're all understood together um, as the latter prophets. So the Jews today, I think, once the canon was established, once the authority was recognized, they haven't departed from their word. The challenge is that they've failed to recognize that the sequel has already come, that the, the fulfillment has arisen. The foundation was established in the old, the fulfillment comes in the new, in the person of Christ, and the Jews the majority of the Jews today have not recognized that shift. But they still hold fast to the traditions of their fathers, which recognized the actuality of these predictions. Why do you think they hold still to a closed canon of prophecy? Because the Messiah hasn't come, and he alone would be the one who would replace Moses. So you said people who identify as evangelical scholars who say that you know, these must have been multiple people and kind of backdated prophecies, how do they handle the prophecies of Christ in Isaiah then? What would they, because those were clearly written before Christ. Right. There, there's, um, most of those who claim to be evangelical, and that's how you framed your question, who still hold to multiple Isaiahs claim that they're not struggling with the possibility of prophets to foretell the future. They're simply saying this portion of the book fits better in a different time period. But they'll still affirm that Christ is anticipated. The liberals do not, that they'll strip all the Messiah totally out of the book of Isaiah and not see anything. They would say, it's clear that people in the New Testament read them this way, but they'll say Isaiah and all of his disciples were not at all thinking of ultimate future ends. They were thinking only about immediate future realities. And when it talks about Babylon 
it makes the most sense that Babylon was on the scene when it talks about Cyrus, that he was already a known figure, even though he may not have been um, risen in power yet. And, but there's, in, in my mind, it, it breaks the message of the book if you don't let it naturally all be related to a single prophet of Jerusalem, Isaiah, who ministered between 740 and 700. So, the prophets of Baal, for instance, there were times, at least scripture records, that they were rounded up and killed at one point or whatever. Maybe very, I don't know. But were prophets of Yahweh who didn't, uh, whose prophecies were not substantiated by fact, are there examples in the Old Testament of those prophets of Yahweh being killed for false prophecy, which was, I thought, the mandate of Scripture? Um, last night we played that game where you pull words out and you've got to say it, and I got um. And I said, it's a word I say all the time. So, um, the question on the table is, were any of the prophets of Yahweh ever killed for being false teachers? And the answer is certainly yes. Um, give me just a second here to... See if I can recall. You'll recall this verse. And um, I'll send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some whom you will, uh, sorry, I was reading ahead, crucify, and some of some you will flog in your synagogue and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. This is not an A to Z prophecy statement because no biblical language uses these words, the, these letters, at the front end and the back end of the alphabet. just happens that way in English. And Zechariah was also not the last of the chronological prophets who died. We read about a certain prophet, I forget his name, it's in Jeremiah, who's the last, pardon? Hananiah. Hananiah is the last of the chronological, chronologically in the Old Testament, the last of the prophets who died. Zechariah is a prophet of Yahweh who was brought to the altar and slaughtered. And here Jesus is talking about him as a martyr. And he happens to be the last prophet mentioned who's slaughtered in the book of Chronicles. And so I think in Jesus' mind, he's talking about his Bible that started with Genesis and ended with Chronicles. Same books as ours, but a different order. And so he's talking about from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the Old Testament... There's been prophets who've been persecuted to the point of death all throughout their history, and Abel was the first. Zechariah, the last one mentioned in your Bible. 
So we could walk through and see different prophets who were executed, um, and they were prophets of Yahweh. I don't remember there ever being an interchange that said the kind of interchanges like we see between Jesus and the Pharisees, where you're blaspheming. But it was rather, you're declaring something I don't like. You're against me. You're rubbing me the wrong way. Put him, do away with him. So the penalty was for the faithful, not the, not the um, apostate or whatever prophets. Yeah, in the, the majority of Israel's kings were pagan. By that, I don't mean foreigners. I just mean they were not true Yahweh followers. And so they were drawn, their ears were tickled by worldly things rather than by the covenant that the prophets were calling them back to. Final question. Final question in the coup d'etat. So in your previous map, you show this, the emergence of this phenomenon of these writing prophets, beginning with Jonah. Where, place Jonah then in the context of Old Testament history. When did he show up in relationship to like other things we read in the Old Testament? Sure. Um. Like, or another way to ask the question, if there was this, we have never seen this kind, we haven't seen this kind of thing before. When did, the, what, what else was going on in Old Testament time at that time? It's after Elijah and Elisha have done their ministry in the northern kingdom. Um, Jonah comes during the peak. We, we hear Jonah's name in the book of 2 Kings, um, and most people think it's the same Jonah, and it's during the golden age of the northern kingdom, during Jeroboam II's reign. So there's no period in Israelite northern kingdom history that is more productive, fruitful, and Jeroboam II is known throughout the ancient Near East, outside the Bible, as being powerful and wealthy. And it's during his day that God raises up Jonah. So it's a time of relative ease where God has not brought down the hammer. Indeed, they think all is well and that God is for them. And so it makes a little sense to me that God would, I mean, he's gearing up to confront them head on, but prior to confronting them head on, he raises a prophet and sends him out of town as a foreign missionary. All right, Isaiah 11. <clears throat> For our third of four, four weeks. <clears throat> Let me pray one more time. Father, open your word to us now as we enter in. Thank you for your kindness. Amen. All right. So here's, here's the section. 11, 1 through 12, 6. The rise of the Spirit-empowered King... We saw the promise of his rise, the impact of his rise, creating a new creation. Then we looked last week as well at this element that in the day of this spirit-empowered king whom we know as Jesus, in his day, new creation would happen. 
And it would start with him. He's called the root of Jesse. In that day, verse 10 of chapter 11, in that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal, a banner for all peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So this is in that day. In that day that this messianic servant savior comes, establishing peace that will reach to the ends of the earth, in that day, the nations will, will look to Him as a banner declaring, come this way, follow this one. And then it says in verse 11, and here's where we pick up, in that day, same day, not only is God going to do a work among the Gentile nations, He's going to do a work among His ethnic Israelite people. But it's associated to a work that He's going to be doing among the nations. In that day, the Lord will extend His hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of His people from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, and the coastlands of the sea. Yahweh saves His people and they celebrate. That's where we are focused today. So we begin here in verse 11. We see a declaration here. The Lord will extend His hand to recover the remnant that remains of His people. Look at people singular in verse 11 versus the peoples plural in verse 10. That suggests to me that in this instance, we are moving from a broader vision of Gentile nations to a focus on a specific people, namely the people that have ethnic Israelite blood in them, that are directly connected to Abraham. But all the while, the vision of Abraham was not that just that he would be a father of a nation, but that he would in some day become a father of a multitude of nations. But right now we're talking about the nation, a nation that already in this book, we've been told, has come under the anger of God and he has chopped them down and burned them like a forest and then burned them again until all that was left was a single shoot. That we learn in chapter 11 verse 1 comes from the stump of Jesse. And now we're told in that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a banner to all these peoples. In that day when the garden of the new creation begins to rise again, God is going to do a work among ethnic Israelites. He hasn't cast them off forever. He's going to do a work among them. They're called a remnant. He's going to recover the remnant that remains of His people. Now this is a term that shows up all throughout the prophets, usually positively. Negatively in Zephaniah, positively in all other books. When you hear remnant, you're thinking about a preserved group, a very small group. Think about a remnant of fabric. A small group, and, and Isaiah talks about them often. Um, yes. So chapter 37, 
And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. From out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Talking about the same reality I think we're looking at here in chapter 11. Now back in chapter 10, if you've got your Bible open, you could just turn your eye over there to verses 21 and 22, which Paul quotes... In Romans 9, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. This is the Apostle Paul reflecting on why it is that in his day so many Jews have rejected Jesus. Because Isaiah himself anticipated that only a small group would actually be saved out of their sin, out of their rebellion, out from under the wrath of God. Only a small group. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, says Paul. And he's citing exactly Isaiah chapter 10. He'll continue in chapter 11 with this. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant. Don't think that God has stopped His work among ethnic Jews. He hadn't in Paul's day and He hasn't today. Simply because there's been a rise of God's work among the Gentiles, what's anticipated in Deuteronomy 32 and picked up in Romans 15 and in Romans 9 and in Romans 11 is that this this group of Gentiles would create jealousy at some future point among ethnic Jews who would all of a sudden recognize you're playing with my toy. They got it at Christmas. It was all exciting to them. And then they put it in the closet. And then friend Gentile comes over a month later and he pulls out the toy and all of a sudden it becomes the favorite toy once again. You know how that works. That's that's what I think is being envisioned here. That, That the Messiah that was once the Jews, the Messiah that they once hoped in, that was given to them, They pushed it aside. And now, the Gentiles have come in and they get to enjoy the Messiah. And Paul's message is, it will awaken jealousy in the soul of the Jews at one point. And they will say, we want that toy back. And Paul says, it's big enough for all of us. At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this remnant manner, just as the Gentiles are being saved in a remnant way, not all the Gentiles saved, only those who believe, called out of darkness into light, so too, God will continue to raise up a remnant of Jews until all of them that He has purposed are saved. That's how I understand that text. And I think it anticipates a future big inclusion of ethnic Israelites back into the one vine of Jesus stemming from Abraham in a future day. A remnant. Now it lists a whole bunch of peoples. I'm saying all Israel, as God defines them from the time of Christ up until 
Christ's second appearing, there's a remnant that has been chosen by God and it continues to grow until the cup is full. Yeah. That, that, that's the all Israel. So the all Israel is not a, like all Jews who are alive at a certain point in history, but rather all the chosen Jews throughout all of time culminating at the end. Now in that way, building by remnant by remnant, the chosen group of Jews will finally reach its fullness just as the chosen group of Gentiles will reach its fullness, all of them in Christ as one people of God and both Jews and Gentiles now having to be adopted into this family and in that way all the Gentiles and all the Jews will be saved together making one church. That's how I understand the all Israel. Oh, the Gentiles, I don't think in this instance, are included in the name Israel. I don't think. Some people do. I'm, I don't think they are. In this instance, Paul seems to be, within chapters 9 through 11, distinguishing the, ever, ever distinguishing the Gentiles from the Jews, and yet seeing them all as one group in Christ, all part of the same vine, grafted in all of them, yet some wild and some natural. Yet even the natural were broken off, but they can be regrafted in. And in that sense, even the Jews have to be adopted back into the family. But I'm understanding in this text right now, the all Israel to be specifically ethnic Israelites, not national Israel. I, I don't want to say that I don't think there's a future for national Israel. I think there's a future for ethnic Israel in Christ as part of the church. That's how I understand what Paul's saying there. Now, he lists a whole group of peoples, Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, let's just see, Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, which is upper Egypt, upper means lower uh, southern Egypt, because the water's flowing this way, okay? So, Pathros is southern Egypt, which is upper Egypt. Cush is south of that. Then we go to Elam, which is Persia. Then you go to Shinar, which is Babylonia. Then you go to Hamat, which is this entire region of the northern Fertile Crescent. And then the coastlands of the sea. So you've got all that was known, seven, and then this one's tagged on as the eighth at the end as if it's, it's reaching beyond the borders of where anyone knows. And all these are places where apparently ethnic Israelites had been pushed at different times in history. And God's going to go in and reach in and pull them out and draw them back to himself. The question is, what does it mean here by a second time? You see that? In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. So, my question is, when was the first time? that he recovered his people 
out of exile? The Exodus. And this is going to happen at a bigger level. Because we're going to pull them from more countries than just Egypt. Now, the idea of a second exodus is something that is consistent throughout the prophets. But it starts with Moses. Let me just show you what Moses does. Now, I don't expect you to read what's on the screen. What I want you to see is the structure. Dark blue, light blue in the middle. This is the song of Moses at the sea. It was sung right after they crossed. We're told that Miriam and all the ladies picked up tambourines and began to sing this song. The song has an introduction. And if you will, just turn in your Bibles over to chapter 12. Just the beginning of chapter 12, because that's part of our unit here. Look at verse 2 and verse 5. Verse 2 and verse 5 of chapter 12. The second exodus will re-sing the song of the sea. It'll be a greater song of Moses. Here's what we read in the introduction. Just listen to what we have here in Exodus 15. Here's the introduction, and then we'll get to the text right here. I will sing of Yahweh. I will sing to Him, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. That's the introduction to the song. And we see in Isaiah, the Lord God is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. Verse 2. Verse 5. Sings praises to the Lord for He has done gloriously. That's the song of the sea. This is second exodus. And we're going to reuse the music from the first exodus in praise to the great God who's now delivered in a greater way than He had it even at the beginning. Now, look at how this is set up. There's two halves to the song after the introduction. Two halves to the song, and then in the middle, as if on dry ground, is the exaltation of Yahweh over all things. So you've got the two walls of judgment, and then the declaration of salvation. Here's how it works. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I'll pursue. I'll overtake. I'll divide the spoil. My desire shall have its full of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. But you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters." All of the first half of the song focuses on the destruction of Egypt. And then we sing, 
Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them up. But now the second half of the song being sung right on the banks of the Red Sea before they ever began to journey to the Promised Land, before they ever encountered Edom, Philistia, Ammon, Moab. They haven't even gotten there. They've just experienced the destruction of the greatest empire on the face of the earth. And this is what they say. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. They haven't even made it to Mount Sinai, let alone the promised land. But they're singing as if they're already there. The peoples have heard already? Really? They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode the mountain, that's Isaiah, over and over again. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Now here's what I think is happening. They're talking about the destruction of all the enemies. They need not fear any of those enemies. Indeed, all those future enemies are already trembling because God had worked something even greater if he can beat Egypt, then you can be certain that with him, with that event, he will graciously give you all other future deliverances. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So we can declare, we already have it, even though we don't. Because the bigger enemy is already overcome. That's the idea. What it means is that all the future enemies are being portrayed as if the first exodus is being repeated on them already. What we've just experienced, this deliverance, is the very deliverance that will be reproduced over and over and over again into our future. But we can't just read this event on its own. Because the Pentateuch, this is Exodus, second book in the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch begins not with Pharaoh as the enemy, but with the serpent as the enemy. And declares that he will raise up an offspring to defeat the serpent. And I didn't think I had enough time today, so I didn't list all the texts, but I could, I could, I could do that of where the prophets, thinking about the future destruction of evil, portray that evil as a serpent. Indeed, they call him Pharaoh. When they're reflecting on the first exodus, they call Pharaoh the dragon of old that was slain in the waters of the sea. They're linking the evil personified in Pharaoh with the original serpent. And they're anticipating that just as the first exodus happened, 
It proves, it grounds the faith of Israel that the future deliverance in the greater exodus over the greater serpent will indeed happen. What I'm saying is that exodus itself appears to be anticipating a second exodus. It's portraying the future deliverances over the enemies as exodus. And that's why the prophets can talk the way they do. When Isaiah says, God's going to come down and get you a second time, this is the framework that he has. Look with me at Isaiah 11. Look at verse 15. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river Euphrates with his scorching breath. That's, that's Isaiah, that's Exodus 15. He will strike it into seven channels so that now the people can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. And this second exodus in this text happens at that time of the Messiah. That's what it says in verse 11. In that day. What day? The day when the Spirit-empowered King rises and brings peace to the ends of the earth. In that day, there will be a second exodus, a new ingathering out of slavery into freedom. Here's Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming. That's new covenant language in Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That's Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Hear that? Isaiah chapter 9 said, To us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David... There shall come forth a shoot from Jesse. Behold, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That's his name. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. A new exodus. Brother John. I had a question before we ever began this, and I think this all answers it, if I'm not mistaken. Verse 10 in chapter 11 says, uh, Of him all the nations shall, shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And it seems to me his resting place, and that was the question, what is that? It seems that that is the salvation of the Lord, the fulfillment of this second exodus. It seems like that's, what, that's how I would understand the resting place. You've moved from slavery to rest. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's what Jesus brings. He moves us from chaos into Sabbath. He's fulfilling what Israel's mission was. 
to see the sovereign reign of God through them brought to all the peoples of the earth. Peace with God once again. Rest. So let, let's focus in on the expression a second time. Uh, the prophet has enumerated the extension of the Lord's hand here as a second time. Uh, that, that scripture could read, he will always, he will continue, he will forever. As for a second time, he will extend his hand. Um, that kind of my original question is he in the Old Testament canon because they regard that second time as his deliverance from various captivities and exiles that are on your market board or do they appreciate that there is a yet a second time that has not yet happened okay so at stake is for Isaiah when he's thinking a second time does that get fulfilled in total with Cyrus's decree that a group of Israelites can actually return bodily, physically, to a specific geographical location that we know of as the Promised Land? Or does Isaiah envision the need for more? And what we're going to see in the rest of the semester is that it's a both-and. And Isaiah goes so far as to name, name Cyrus as the one who will bring about restoration to physical land of Israel but then he goes further than that he doesn't only talk about Cyrus by name he has a second person that is not Cyrus and what does he name him The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But then he goes on to say, the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. My name is Israel, who has been set apart from the womb to bring back Israel. This is Isaiah 49, 1-6. The one who brings restoration to the physical land, Isaiah calls Cyrus. But the one who brings reconciliation with God... For both the nation and, Isaiah 49 says, it's too light a thing that I should simply, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Israel and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Reconciliation happens from Israel The servant, who is not the nation, who's a person. So, is the second exodus fulfilled fully in the return of Cyrus? Isaiah would say, by no means. 
This is initial restoration, but we're anticipating something far greater than Cyrus brings. And that's why even in the book of Ezra, sorry, let's jump to the end of Chronicles. Chronicles ends by saying, Jeremiah prophesied 70 years. Cyrus declares the end of that 70-year period. Exile has come to an end. But Isaiah would say, after Cyrus comes the servant who will bring reconciliation with God. The Old Testament ends with Chronicles and Cyrus' decree. So then you turn the page from the Old Testament itself. Cyrus didn't do enough. Isaiah is going to say, we need this to happen, and Cyrus doesn't bring it. The one who brings it is the one, the servant, who will die in Isaiah 53. It's, it's um, very connected to the concept of the remnant, because the remnant only finds its identity in association with the Israel who is the person. Well, oh, time is way up. Here's, here's where I'll end, okay? You only see this if you look at a footnote, but it's all marked in your ESVs. It's in the NIV. A little footnote in Luke 9.31, two men show up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah and Moses. And they begin to talk to Jesus about, ESV simply says, they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But the Greek word is his exodus. And I think they're talking about, the first Moses is talking with the new Moses, about the greater deliverance that Moses himself anticipated, that Isaiah anticipated. A greater exodus, this time not out of turf, not out of physical slavery, but out of sin. And it's all focused on this one person. The prophets were hoping in him. And this second exodus that we see laid out in chapter 11 and 12, 1 through 6, celebrated in chapter 12, is all of it focused on this person. Isaiah, as you walk through his book, you're going to begin to see increasingly mention of the second exodus that brings about new creation out of slavery and all of it happening through the servant Savior, the earthly king, Jesus. And we are experiencing it in an already, already we're experiencing this, I believe. The Great Commission is the call for all people groups to find freedom from Minneapolis to Cape Town, to find freedom out of slavery through this this royal, spirit-empowered figure, Christ.
Go in peace. See you in the future, Lord willing. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.